right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here in chapter five, we saw Moses's first encounter with Pharaoh. And it appears that the first encounter with Pharaoh was not successful. That is, God sent Moses to Pharaoh that Moses may tell the Pharaoh to let the people go. But the Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And instead, he made the burdens upon the people more difficult. That is, he told the people at first, the Egyptians were responsible for giving the people straw in order to make bricks. But now Pharaoh accuses Moses and Aaron of making the people lazy and that the people themselves were lazy with all of this excess time. And so therefore, the edict that came down from the Pharaoh was that the Jewish slaves were to gather their own straw wherever they could find it and then make the bricks. And the number of bricks would not be diminished. They had to make the same number as before. And so therefore, the, uh, the slaves and this, the whole idea of this was to crush their spirit. So therefore, the slaves and having to go and find their own straw, they found it impossible to find their own straw. And the labor of making the bricks was already severe. But to continue the making of the bricks after finding their own straw, it was impossible to produce the same number of bricks. And so therefore, uh, in not doing so, the he the, the I'm sorry, the Egyptian taskmasters and officers over these slaves, that is the slave taskmasters, they beat them. And so in the beating of these slaves, they, the slaves themselves appealed to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh that it is impossible under the current conditions, that is finding their own straw and producing the same number of bricks as before. That it is impossible under these conditions to do so. But nevertheless, Pharaoh refused to change his mind. So therefore, uh, uh, it appeared, but let me just finish this part of the review. And so coming back from the presence of Pharaoh, the Hebrew taskmasters, the ones who were beaten, tells Moses and Aaron that this situation, this current situation is all their fault and they're asking God to judge. And so it appears now we're going all the way back to that former statement that I was making. It appears that this uh, God sending Moses to the Pharaoh was unsuccessful, but it was not unsuccessful. It had to be done in order that God can be justified in what he was doing to Pharaoh. Remember that the only reason why God will harden Pharaoh's heart is because Pharaoh has already hardened his own heart. And so therefore it, it, it frees and justifies, releases God to bring those plagues upon Egypt because of Pharaoh's resistance to the word and the will of God. But nevertheless, so we'll finish the review. So what happens after Moses is accused by his own people because of the present circumstance? And you have to keep that in mind. It became it was already slavery was already miserable enough. It became unbearable at this point. OK, but so as they came to Moses, instead of Moses hurling in accusations back to his Israelite people, what Moses simply did was he took it to God. All right. Now, with that, we move into chapter six. Now, chapter six is a continuation of these same events. That is, uh, the people went to Moses and complained. Moses is now, in a sense, he offers a complaint to God. And as it ended in chapter six, talking, uh, saying to God how that God had not yet delivered the people ever since Moses had come but only made the events worse. Not so much as God, but Moses is coming to Pharaoh only made these events worse. And so in chapter six, now we begin the response of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for under compulsion, he will let them go and under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. 
God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord and I appear to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Okay. All right. Now, guys, I'm going to do a, something a little bit different than what I normally do in providing commentary in, in the sense that I want to take my time because there are a number of things. And I, I normally always get excited. I get excited real quick whenever I start dealing with the scriptures. Talk to me about anything else other than the scriptures or politics. I don't get excited. But anyway, so I want to slow it down so that we can bring out the different uh, points and nuances within the text. Okay. So allow me some time. So the videos may get a little lengthy and I already know I'm already long winded, but nevertheless, the teaching so that you can understand what's going on, not in a superficial way, but in a more precise and exact way of what God is trying to say. All right. So now let's get into it. So now God responds to Moses's prayer, actually Moses's complaint. And then he begins to reassure Moses that indeed I will deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And not only that, because you're saying that Pharaoh did not let them go. Pharaoh is not going to simply let them go. When I get through with Pharaoh, he's going to drive them out. So we will see desperation in Pharaoh in getting the children of Israel out. So this simply emphasizes the fact in an encouraging, in an encouraging and aff affir affirmation from God that indeed he will bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And I don't care what it appears to be at this time. And so God continues to stay. He says, I am the Lord. Now, actually, in the Hebrew text, he simply is emphasizing. He is saying, I am Yahweh. He's using his personal name. And so the introduction of the personal name of God here is implying the covenantal name of God. Now, what I mean by covenantal name is simply this. The name by which God makes and affirms and swears by. So take all of that in. He makes this covenant he affirms the covenant. He will do what he will do. I promise you that. And he swears by his name. And that's why the Bible even says that you don't even take the name of God in vain. Don't swear by God. We don't do that in New Testament times. OK, because the name of God is sacred and holy. But nevertheless, he uses that covenantal name here as it deals with he reflects to the covenant that he made with Moses's ancestors, that is Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we know because we've studied all throughout the book of Genesis, how that God God made a covenant with Abraham. He made that covenant again with Isaac as well as with Jacob. And this covenant dealt with giving them the land of promise. And we also know it about the seed that should come through these people, that seed ultimately being Jesus, the Messiah. But we don't want to go there because God is not emphasizing that here. What he is emphasizing in particular, that part of the covenant is the land part of the covenant, giving them the land of Canaan. OK, and so he continues on with respect to the idea that by 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 who he is and that covenantal name, I am Yahweh. And then he goes to he continues to say that he appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob by God almighty. And uh, but they did not know him by Yahweh. Now, let me make you understand what God is saying here. What he's saying is when he revealed himself to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob here by saying God Almighty, which is in Hebrew, El Shaddai. All right. He is emphasizing the God who provides for them, the God who protects them 
or a God of power. So what God is speaking of is by revealing, by saying that he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, he is talking about his interaction between them, his interaction, I'm sorry, with them. And his interaction was a God who provides a God. That's what it means by Yahweh Yari, uh, uh, God who sees. OK, because he who sees will provide. So the God who provides, the God who protects, but he did not make himself known to them as Yahweh. Now, what that part means is clearly we know and Yahweh is the personal name of God. Clearly, all throughout the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the personal name of God was Yahweh. What God is saying, he is not saying that they didn't know his personal name. Because remember, even look at the context of this stuff. The personal name of Yahweh is related to the covenant. So what God is saying is, although I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay, they knew my personal name. I did not interact with them as far as covenant keeping. What covenant keeping are you talking about? Giving them the land of promise. Cause notice all three, neither Abraham, Isaac, nor Jacob, inherited the promised land that none of them did. But what God is saying here is, he says, I promise you, Moses, I'm going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage into the land of Canaan. And I will make them inherit the land of Canaan. So therefore in inheriting the land of Canaan, the children of Israel will experience the covenant of God. God will fulfill his covenant. What covenant? The covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in giving them the land. The, his descendants will experience that event. So that's what God means when he says here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know him by his name, Yahweh. Not, not meaning they didn't know his name, they used his name. That just simply means this covenant keeping interaction. What covenant? Give them the land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't get it. But guess what? Their descendants, these ones that Moses, that God is speaking about here, the children of Israel in bondage, they will experience the covenant keeping nature by receiving the land that was promised to their forefathers. Okay. And so God continues on to say verse number four and how that once he brings them out, he will establish, not only just establish the covenant that is bringing them out and giving them the land in which they sojourn. So he'll bring them out and bring them into the land. All right. All right. So now that's the issue with that. Knowing the name of God is not about the forefathers didn't know his name. They just did not experience the realization of the covenant in getting the promised land. All right. Now let's go on to verse number five. God continues speaking. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Okay, so now 
as God continues to speak, he lets he tells Moses to let them know he is aware of the difficulties that they have faced in the past and that they are presently facing now in Egyptian slavery. And so now God, when he says he has remembered his covenant, remember, we talked about that earlier. The remembering does not mean that God has forgotten the things that he has said. It just simply God is simply saying, I am now acting on the covenant promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give them the land of promise. That is the land of Canaan. OK. And so he says to verse number six, he says, so he tells Moses, remember, they were angry with Moses because of the results of when Moses went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh made them gather their own straw and it was just very harsh on them. So God now sends Moses back to those same leaders of the people, representative of the people as a whole. And he simply says to them, you tell them I am Yahweh. In other words, by the covenant name of God, he will bring them out of Egypt with a strong hand performing many great signs, not only in the sights of the sight of the Egyptians, these great signs that Yahweh is the Lord. Yahweh is God will also be performed in the sight of Israel as well. And so God tells them he will deliver them and he will redeem them. And this concept of redemption will play uh, even an even greater role once God brings them out of the land of Egypt. But we don't want to get into the concept of redemption right now. But he will redeem them with power and great judgments. And here he is God is implying the future plagues that will be placed upon Egypt. The, the, and we all know about those things. Okay. But anyway, and then he tells them again in affirming, because that's what God is doing. He is affirming that to the children of Israel, he is trying to soothe their despondent spirits. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Again, that is speaking of, again of God's keeping of his covenant. And that's why he keeps using the name. And he says again, I am Yahweh. So we see an encapsulation here. Notice he begins by saying, I am Yahweh. That is, I am the Lord. And he ends by saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So all of this encapsulates the promise of God as he is. God himself is affirming by his own name. He will do these things. And surely as God is and the idea is swearing by his own name, the name of the covenant God. You can be assured that I will bring you out. And that's the idea. OK, but nevertheless, he tells Moses to go and take this message back to the people. But because of the remember now, the present hardships of the people, slavery was already hard. And now they got to get their own straw. Remember, they said, told Moses that you put a sword in their hands to kill us. OK, so because of that. Even now, Moses coming back with this affirmative word from the Lord. They didn't pay any attention to Moses and they did not believe him. And that's how it ended. They didn't believe nothing that Moses was saying at this time. OK, so now let's continue. Verse number 10. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. OK, so now we have God's second call to Moses. And here it is in the land of Egypt to go to Pharaoh for the second time. And when God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh for the second time to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, Moses then begins to complain. And what he simply says is he said, well, wait a minute. When you told when you sent me back again to the sons of Israel to try to encourage them that God would let them go. 
They didn't believe me. So if Israel didn't believe me, how can you expect Pharaoh to believe me? And then he begins to say, because I am unskilled in speech in Hebrew, he actually said, I'm, I have an uncircumcised lip. I am, I am of uncircumcised lips, which literally means, in other words, Moses is saying he does not have the rhetorical skills, the skills in speaking. If he didn't have the skills in speaking to convince Israel, he doesn't have the skills to convince Pharaoh by his speaking. And that's what he is simply saying. And then verse number 13 simply says, nevertheless, God still sends Moses and Aaron in this great commission to deliver them. Now, not only that, but what we have to understand here, and it's a beautiful thing, that verse number 13 begins to pivot in a sense. It begins to form an interlude because we're looking at Moses and Aaron. So then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron to do what God has commanded them to do. All right. And what what basically will begin here, and it seems confusing at the end of the chapter, verses 14 to the end of the chapter is we have a genealogy. But the only thing the genealogy is doing here at the end of this chapter is it is basically identifying Moses and Aaron. In other words, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to do this great commission. The great commission and the great power of God upon Egypt, the plagues and all of the things that all of these things that would be historical, historical and will go down through the annals of time that would be done by Moses and Aaron. The genealogy that coming comes afterward simply is identifying. Well, what Moses and Aaron are you talking about? And then it says God is sending and talking about this particular Moses and Aaron, the Moses and Aaron who comes from this family. And it's for this reason. So I guess I said here, when you look at this genealogy that is beginning to talk about, you have to remember the idea is surrounding Moses and Aaron. Okay. So therefore, as God begins to talk about preliminary in a preliminary sense, about the sons of Jacob, and that is uh, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, he stops at Levi. Remember, Jacob has 12 sons. But when we get into this particular genealogy, he's going to talk about up to Levi because he's only dealing with Levi because it is from Levi that Moses comes from. So therefore, he's not not concerned as Moses is dealing with here. The genealogy of all of Jacob's son. He is only getting down to that third son that is Levi. He's only going to get to Levi because it is from the family, the tribe of Levi that Moses and Aaron descend from. And all of this genealogy has to do with identifying Moses and Aaron. What Moses and Aaron? The Moses and Aaron that God sent into Egypt before the Pharaoh to deliver the children of Israel. And that's what this genealogy is all about. And the, and the things that pertain to Moses and Aaron. So we'll talk about that too. Okay. All right. So now let's get into verse number 14 in dealing with the genealogy as we're looking to Moses and Aaron and allow me to guys to do it a little differently. Normally I read, uh, a substantial amount of text and then come back with the commentary. But allow me simply to read like maybe one or two verses and provide commentary because it, it there are certain unique things that pertain to that point and then it may move on. And so let me deal with it that way. Okay. Verse 14. These are the heads of their father's household, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn. Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. All right. So now Moses began to deal with. Remember now, we're simply moving towards 
Levi. Okay. But he simply starts with Reuben and Reuben was Jacob's first son. And he talks about the heads of the family and these family heads of the family from the men who went down into Egypt. You can see the same thing in Genesis. And I think that's chapter 46. Okay. So the idea of it is basically the same heads of the family. And he starts with the first son of Jacob, Reuben. And that, and that's it because he's moving towards Levi, the third son. Then he goes to, let's go to 15. The sons of Simon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jacob and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simon. And so now he deals with the second son of Jacob who were in, went down into the land of Egypt, heads of the families. And that's the idea, heads of the families. And he names those particular sons. And notice again, once again, when he mentions Shaul, as, as is mentioned earlier, that he is the son of a Canaanite woman. And again, this all reflects back to a remembrance of why it was necessary to bring the sons of Jacob into the land of Egypt, into the land of Goshen in the first place is because of their continual threat of intermarriage with the Canaanites. And we talked about that uh, all throughout Genesis, beginning roughly about chapter 34. Okay. Chapter 34 with the Dinah incident. We saw it again in chapter what? 30, 38. I believe it is dealing with the incident of Judah. And the whole point is we dealt with that time after time, God's reason for sending them into the land of Egypt in the first place so that they could develop, grow into a nation away from being integrated with the Canaanites, the Canaanite goddess. And you know, when you intermarry the Canaanites, you'll end up worshiping the gods of the Canaanites because the Canaanites were idolatrous and extremely immoral people, godless people. And so therefore God's people, his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would end up being like the Canaanites and basically become useless to God by useless to God. That was God's first word to Abraham, uh, Genesis 12 and three. And in you, that is by Abraham's people and, and, and in particular, Jesus, the Messiah, but by the people of Abraham in you, all the families of the earth, other Gentile nations will be blessed. There can be no blessings of the other families of the earth if Abraham's own people themselves end up being accursed. Why? That constant intermingling with the Canaanites and they themselves become like Canaanites. So again, here it brings out that idea of Shaul remembrance of this Canaanite threat. OK, so it disperses with Simon, the, 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 fam the heads of the family of Simon. Now let's go to verse number 16. These are the names of the sons of, Le of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And the length of, and the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimi, according to their families. The sons of Kohath, Amram and Ishar and Hebron and Uziel, and the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. Okay, now let me, okay, one more. The sons of Merari, Mali and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. All right, now we get to Jacob's third son. And this is the whole instance for why we have this genealogy in the first place. And notice in dealing with Jacob's 12 sons, he will stop here with Levi. Why? Because he is concerned with the family of Moses and Aaron and Moses and Aaron, as you will see, come from the family of Levi. That's why the Levites become important in history when, that we will see here later in later history. But anyway, so he begins to talk about, Levi, uh, um, and his family. And notice we, he will spend the majority of the rest of his time 
in dealing with the family of that come from Levi and particular ones will have particular importance. So he talks about that family, I think until about four generations. But anyway, let me go on. So he talks about the length of Levi's life, verse number 16, being 137 years. Now, two things. The reason being, notice here, he brings the number of years for his life, but he doesn't talk about the number of years for everybody. And, and this is important, too, simply because these are main characters, main characters. Not only is, let me say this length of life being long because it is, it is significant that these men live this length of life, this number of years. So it is significant for that. But another reason and most likely primary that he brings out the length of lives for only a certain number of people is because they play major roles, major roles. Okay. And so therefore, Levi plays a major role because he is the head of the family, head of the tribe of Levi. Right. And it is from Levi that Moses will come. It is from Levi that the priestly tribe will come. The tribe of Levi. It is from the tribe of Levi that the priesthood will come. And so therefore, Levi's age is mentioned here. All right. And then it talks about the sons of Levi. Remember Gershon, Kohath and Merari, and it mentions their sons. All right. So then let me draw your attention to verse number 18. And it talks about the sons of Kohath. All right. The sons of Kohath, which is a son of Levi. Now Kohath, which will come from, from whom will come the Kohathites and Kohath, uh, uh lifespan is given as 133 years. The reason why Kohath's lifespan is given again, Kohath is a major person. It is from Kohath that you will have the family. And remember all of these are Levites, the families of the Kohathites. It will be the Kohathites who will play a major role with respect to the tabernacle and they will bear the tabernacle. They, and, and, and all of this will be important as we'll get into the book of numbers. And, and this is when God will say that the Kohathites will bear the responsibility of carrying the articles of the, the tabernacle. They will have the per, in other words, they'll have hand to hand to hand contact, contact with the articles of the tabernacle. Now, <laughs> I'm struggling not to get into this part, guys, because you'll later on find out that the Ark of the Covenant, which will be the most holiest of vessels of the tabernacle, okay, to by the which God manifests his glory, only the Kohathites can touch it. And then throughout scripture, and I shouldn't even be going here, but I'm here anyway. And you'll find that throughout scripture, there will be problems when other people besides the Kohathites touch the Ark of the Covenant. They'll die. The hand of the judgment of God will come out and strike them and kill them dead. But I don't want to get into all of that and I shouldn't have gone into that. But again, I'm just trying to show you why. Kohath is important and his lifespan is given because his family from him will play a significant role. All right. And that's why his age here is mentioned. And all the way it gets up to Merari, uh, the other son of Levi, and talks about his family. All right. And then it sums out. These are the families of the Levites. Okay. And so now you see why these genealogies are important and what we have to understand. So let me digress. Whenever the Bible gives a genealogy and I myself love the genealogies, don't ever get too bored with it because a lot of information is contained in the genealogy as we're seeing here. And we will see throughout the text here. A lot of information is given historically, and it also talks about other events that may unfold in scripture as it deals with these names of these people. Okay. But anyway, enough of that. So now let's get to verse number 20. Amram married his father, his father's sister, Yoshebed, 
and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, and Nephah. I tell you what, let me just deal with that because that's to be dealt with on its own. So now we get to Amram and, and Amram is again of the family of Kohath. Remember the Kohathites, special family. Amram is of that same family and it is Amram who is the father of Moses. And remember, the whole reason that we're getting into this genealogy is to identify that Moses and Aaron who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. So now we get to deal with the issue of Moses and Aaron's father, Amram. And Amram married his father's sister, Yoshebed. That is, he married his aunt, or some people say his auntie, <laughs> which later on will be forbidden in the law of Moses. However, because the law of Moses has not yet been given, there is no wrong, there's nothing wrong with it at this time. But once the law of Moses will be given, it will not be permissible for a man to marry his father's sister. Okay. But at this time it is permissible. So he marries Yoshebed. Uh, uh, I think her name means something like the glory of God, the gl glory of God. All right. Yahweh is glorious, something to that effect. So he marries him and produces whom Aaron and Moses. Now we know he has uh, three siblings from this, Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, but we're not concerned with Miriam here because we're trying to identify Moses and Aaron. And then it gives the length of Amram's life to be 137 years, all for the reasons that I've given you earlier. Length of life given for Amram is because he plays a major role. What major role? He's the father of Moses and Aaron. Okay. Now let's go to verse number 21. The sons of Ishar, Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. So you know what? Let me deal with that. So then he tries to deal with Ishar. Now notice something too. Here's what I want you to notice. As we're dealing with this genealogy here, and Ishar is a son of Kohath. Notice it doesn't deal with every single son from every single son. It only deals with certain families, the important families and certain sons from that family. And so from the family of Kohath, and that's important, the Kohathites are important, as I just told you, it now deals with the sons of Ishar and his son Korah, Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. Okay, so let me just tell you why I brought that part out. Because for even though um, Ishar didn't play a major role, his son Korah will play a major role. And we'll see that once we get into the book of Numbers. So what Moses is also doing here in the genealogy, as remember, we're identifying Moses and Aaron, right? But what he is also doing is he is giving us names in particular of people who will play a particular role later on. We'll see it later on in the book of Exodus. But here with Korah, we'll see him in the book of Numbers, especially when we deal with those who rebelled against Moses, which will be Korah, and Korah will lead a rebellion because he thinks he is somebody. That is, he comes from the family of the Kohath. He think, remember the Kohath, the, the big family, if you let me say it that way. But his problem will be he is not, he, he's jealous of, see, I shouldn't get into it, but I'm trying to explain to you guys why he is mentioned here. But you'll see, he's going to be jealous of Aaron because Aaron will have the priestly, Aaron will have the priesthood and there will be this whole issue. So this is why you'll see Moses bringing out these particular names. That name again here in particular, Korah. All right. And so also he just mentions, since we're talking about the sons of Ishar, he mentions all of them. Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Okay, let's go to 22. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elazphan, and Sithriel. And so now he just simply rounds out the family of Kohath's sons by dealing with Uziel, the final one. Uh, Mishael, Elazaphan, Eliz El and Sithri. Verse 23. 
Aaron married Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Same thing, guys, the reason why. So let me explain. So now we deal, we've already identified, we know Moses and Aaron got the same father. So therefore, why are we talking about Aaron and his wife? That's because it will be from Aaron that you will have the priesthood. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of details about it, but later on, what we will see, <clears throat> and this will be talked about in the book of Numbers, it will be from the tribe of Levi that they will be given the care of the tabernacle. That is like the temple in the wilderness, so to speak. It's not a temple, you know, with curtains somewhere there, right? Dwelling of God where God himself will manifest. The Levites will be given the care of the tabernacle and only the Levites. No person can draw nearer to the tabernacle than the Levites, the service of it. All right. And this will be divided, the care of the tabernacle amongst the different families of the Levites. But also, too, in the families of the Levites, and notice what you see here, from amongst the Kohathites, from them will come from the family of Amram uh, will come Moses, who will lead them out, and Aaron, and it will be Aaron who will be selected as the priest, the priest, different from the Levites, okay? He is, Aaron is a Levite, but the priests are different from the Levites. And it is the priest who will have the responsibility of ministering before God, all right? They can do the sacrifices and things of that nature. They will come into the tabernacle and, and light and change the lighting and the oils and the, and the bread. And it will be from the priest's family, that, that is from the family of Aaron alone, that will come the high priest. And that's what Aaron will be. Aaron will become Israel's first high priest. And it will be the high priest who only has the uh, permission and the privilege to go into the holy place, the holiest of holy before God on that one day of the year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And I know I'm well here, but I want you to understand it. And the high priest will only have this uh, privilege and he will wear special clothing. OK. And so the point is. This is why we are bringing out Aaron here because we've already identified him as the brother of Moses, the son of Amram and Yoshebed. But here it is because Aaron will become the from his family will become the priest. All Levites are not priests. You got it. All priests are Levites. That is all priests come from the family of Aaron who come from Levi. You must be from the family of Aaron. And it is the priests who are even closer to God. So first is the priest. First is the high priest. He is the closest one. Then becomes the rest of the priests. And then come the Levites in that order. You see, so that's why it's important. And so here, because Aaron becomes the first high priest and his family is the priestly family. That's why we kind of Moses here points out Aaron in particular and his wife, Elisheva, uh, uh, from which we get the modern name Elizabeth. And that name simply means oath of God. And then it talks about the sons of Aaron and the reasons why it talks about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar is because Aaron's sons becomes the first priest. So Aaron will become the first high priest his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, will become the first priests. And later on in the book of Leviticus, we will find out these first two sons of Aaron, the two priest sons, Nadab and Abihu, will be killed by God in judgment. But we don't want to get into that. So let's move on to verse number 24. The sons of Korah, Asir, and Elkanah and Abasath, these are the families of Korahites. And the reason why he mentions the sons of Korah is, as I told you earlier, that Korah will become a key figure in the book of Numbers as one of those who resist 
Moses and this Korah will be killed in judgment as God makes the earth open up and swallow him whole. But we don't want to get there. But again, now you see why it mentions Korah. Verse 25, Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putiel and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's household of the Levites according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Okay, now you see how it works now? In verse number 25, he said, so he said, and I said all of these things to say, it is this Aaron and Moses. So the genealogy is given in, in general. The main point of it is to identify Moses and Aaron. Which Moses and Aaron are you talking about? These Moses and Aaron that descended from these people. Okay. And so, so it talks about Aaron's son, Eleazar. Again, remember I told you, it doesn't talk about all of the different sons. He's a son of this. He's a son of this. He's a son of this. And then gets to the other son. He's a son of this son. Of this. It only talks about certain ones. Here again, we talk about a certain one of Aaron's son, Aaron's son, Eleazar, and that is namely Phineas. And the reason why, again, remember, he, he Moses writing of the events that have already happened, it, it looks forward to Phineas, the son of Aaron, because later on, we're going to find out in, and some of you guys probably have heard of the false prophet Balaam, who tries to, uh, 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 who is hired by the king of King Balak to curse Israel. Phineas will play a key role because Balaam, who will, who, who is hired by Balak, the king to curse the people, Balaam will not be able to curse the people. But what Balaam will do is this. He will devise a scheme. I think that's in Numbers 25. He will devise a scheme and try to get the Midianite women. And these women are idolaters. Okay. And what they'll do is in the worship of their idolatrous gods, they worship them through sex. And so they will use their sexuality to engage with the children and the heads of the families of Israel, because since Balaam can't curse them, he will try to get the people to make themselves a curse before God. And how can you do that? By turning into idolatry. What would we do? Men love women. So he's going to get these idolatrous women. I think her name would be Cosby. And he'll get these idolatrous women to have sex. But in the thing of having sex with these Israelite men, having sex will be involved in idolatrous worship. You kind of saw that with Judah when he saw his daughter-in-law Tamar and thought she herself was a temple idolatrous prostitute. But so he did these things. So what you'll find out is the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, his name is Phineas. He's going to actually take a spear and kill both people. But anyway, kill an Israelite and this idolatrous prostitute woman. All right. He's going to take us and literally kill them before Moses. And in doing so, he'll quench, he'll quench the anger of God and God will give to Phineas a covenant of peace and Phineas will himself become a high priest, the high priest. Okay. But anyway, so once again, why what you see here in this genealogy that Moses is mentioning, it's not concerned with everybody, but people who will play future key roles. And it is this Phineas who will play that role. And in the end of this genealogy section, he is simply saying here, so I've told you all the heads of the father's house and these people, people's name in particular, so that you will know who is that exact and precise Moses and Aaron that I'm talking about, that you can identify them through their father's names. Okay. 
All right, now let's finish the chapter. Now it came, verse number 28, came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Okay, as we end chapter, chapter six, I love that. I just, I do love all the scripture. But as we end chapter six, all the rest of the chapter simply is doing is. It is saying, okay, remember, I told Moses to go to the church, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let the children of Israel go, let the children of Israel go. And Moses complained to me and said, the children of Israel didn't believe me. Why should Pharaoh believe me? And then immediately after that, it went into the genealogy to identify Moses. Okay. And so what the rest of the chapter is simply doing is God is simply through the text of the scripture. He's just simply taking off from where he left from. So he says, before I started talking about the genealogy stuff to identify Moses, I was sending him to tell him to go to Pharaoh the second time to let the children of Israel go. All I'm doing is I'm just continuing where I left off from that little brief hiatus that we kind of had uh, uh, in identifying who Moses was. So, okay, let's get back to that point of me telling Moses, go back to Pharaoh again for the second time. And that's what the end of the chapter is doing. It is preparing us as God is telling Moses for the second time to go to Pharaoh, to tell him to let the people go. Why? Because as we move here and move into chapter seven and Moses goes to Pharaoh for the second time to let the people go. Now we are going to see God move upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians with a mighty hand. So here's where we're simply moving with the text as Moses prepares to go to Pharaoh and begin the 10 plagues of Egypt. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on that one. Well, since I did all of that uh, 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 exit, <laughs> join me again as we come into G Exodus chapter seven, when Moses goes to Pharaoh. And as I like to say, the game is now on. See you next time.